0: Grab your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of John, Chapter 17. John 17. What a joy it is to be in the middle of this beautiful chapter. This prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ to God the Father. Today we will study verses 11 through 19. You have in your bulletin there a little sermon note handout. You can put pen to paper and hopefully just draw forth what God gives us today and allow it to be a place of meditation and study later in your week. Read with me verse 11 and verse 18 to begin. Jesus says, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. And then 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. When Jesus says he's no longer in the world, his, it is because his public ministry is done. He concluded his public ministry back at the end of chapter 12, And then in chapter 13 through 16, he gave his farewell discourse to the disciples. And now in the beginning of chapter 17, he's been praying to the Father, praying that the Father would bring him into glory, same glory he had from eternity past, and praying for his faithful disciples. As a way of transition, he prays to the Father about the handing of the baton, From himself to his faithful disciples, who would now be tasked with taking the good news of Jesus' gospel into the world. Understand, Jesus is finishing his work of testimony and about to be atonement, and then he will commission the church, his redeemed, to be his ambassadors, his witnesses. To the world who desperately needs the good news of Jesus Christ, this is the witness or the testimony we too have been called to share. A witness is someone with truthful information or insight regarding an event. You witnessed. Testimony is the declaration or sharing of the truthful information or insight that one has regarding an event. Our Christian proclamation and testimony is of an event so famous it's been given a name. The gospel. The word gospel comes from the Greek word evangelion. An evangel is news of a, a great event, a great historic event, with such importance, like the victory of a war or a new king, that it wasn't news you just heard about and moved on. It was, it was news that changed the listener's condition and required a response upon hearing it. The Christian gospel is known as the good news. The good news. For there is no greater event in history than the death of God the Son in the place of undeserving sinners to bring about new life in Him by which only He can provide. So evangelism is built on that word evangel. It's the sharing or the proclaiming of the evangel, the good news of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that what we have, it is what we have seen and heard, and what it is is so life-changing that we're literally compelled to share it. Acts 4.20 For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Church, I fear that in a modern day, many of us have grown all too comfortable with our normal daily routines and the people we do life with, that they know that we're into our Christian faith, but, but we don't keep testifying of this thing that has just shaken us to our core. May we never be done, never slow to testify of what Jesus has done. Be bold, not ashamed, not fearful for man's response, but joyful to share that we too were once unsatisfied and dead in sin, just like they are. Powerless to change ourselves, to free ourselves. But Christ, who is God's one and only son, died on on our behalf and gave us his righteousness. He conquered the grave as the Father raised Him from the dead and returned Him to the throne to reign forever, giving us assurance that we too will join Him in eternal life with God, that we will not be abandoned, for Christ intercedes for us now, today, faithfully, and that we too are now a child of God, every day being sanctified by the power of the Holy Spirit to live a life that honors God and Gets to share this life-changing good news with others. In our revised, newly revised statement of beliefs that's now on the website. I encourage you to study and memorize and come to know that that carefully sculpted statement of what is the gospel. It's a helpful tool for us to have those clarities in view. Church, this is the good news of Jesus that we're to share every day. And so the question is, why? Why why testify? Why testify when no one's put us on the stand? Why just testify with strangers or grocery clerks or gas station attendants or why? Two, Two reasons this morning. Because the darkness has mankind consumed unto death. That billions of people on the earth are desperate for the light of the gospel. That you'd be affected by that reality. You were probably stirred or troubled at the reality of the global events that have happened as of the last weeks, to very devastating earthquakes in Mexico, to very devastating hurricanes in the southern United States, eastern United States. Many lives lost, towns leveled. Picture of sadness and despair in the news, people's faces. Hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, even maybe impacted. Church, billions of people on the earth today are desperate for the light of the gospel. And it's God's design. that we are to be the ones to declare and testify so that those who have heard by his sovereign will and grace at work would believe and be reborn. We need to testify because of sin, because of death, because there is no answer for sin or death other than Jesus And we are the means by which God intends for the dead and the dark world that we live in to hear the good news. There is no plan B. We're it. We are called to share and give testimony, to give them a taste of what God's other centered love is really like. Called to be a witness to the gospel. We're not called to be a lawyer, to be a judge or jury. We leave that part up to God. But He's called us to witness. He's called us to testify. If the Holy Spirit lives in you, then you have a witness to share, a testimony to give. to love those that God's put around you enough to just be genuine with them, to not be bashful or ashamed. Tell them, I love you enough. Share this with you. Can I take you to lunch. I just want to share with you this most passionate thing on my heart. I just want to be, I just want to be sure that I've been clear. I've loved you enough to, to speak boldly. to be available to you if you have questions, if you're interested in looking at God's word further. I trust that it's not our job to convert them, to get them to, to say a prayer, to, to twist their arm, to be part of us. But to be available, to lean in. That in God's holy power and will and timing, if he ordains, that they'll lean back in and we're gonna walk with them. Luke six forty five. the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. The evil produ- person out of the tr- evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If the Holy Spirit is upon us, then let's speak of his goodness and power and grace. This is an area of obedience to God that is critical for our church to understand and embrace. Back in John 15, 26, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me through us. So it is clear that in saving the church, God has chosen to not take us home to be with him yet. Instead, he sent us out into a mission field to bear witness of that which is life, Jesus Christ. We do this by the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us, sanctifying us and giving us what is needed to navigate each day, each conversation. We testify because we are dead in sin and we too needed life. And we recognize that the matter before them is life and death. So we testify. We also testify because Jesus said to. Matthew 28, 18-20, He came to the disciples after His resurrection and said, I've been given complete authority in heaven and earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you and be sure of this that I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. There's not much more to, to be said or to understand than the fact that Jesus simply tells us to. To go, to testify. And so let me ask you, are you going lately? Are you testifying John 17.11, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Jesus says to the Father. See the specificness of his design for us, the church, in this time. And in verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Look at part two of this morning's sermon, the unity of God's people. As we look at the second part of verse 11, Jesus says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me that they may be one, even as we are one. Church, we need not attain any standing before God, for Christ has given it to us. I proclaim it very good news today that God is the one who secures us and preserves us, his beloved, unto the end. Jesus is emboldening this reality as he says to the Father, keep them in your name. Constantly what we'll see Jesus and the apostles do is pray for things or instruct things that the word tells us are going to be the reality. But there's still emphasis. There's still reminder. There's still... Even though we're secure in him, there's still many teachings in the New Testament by the apostles by which they say, fight, don't drift, don't walk away. And we know that we, if we're truly safe, can't walk away. But that still is good teaching, encouragement, counsel. and We see that even today in Jesus' prayer. Keep them in your name. Church, we must always be about the name of God, His glory, His fame. Our purpose is His glory, the making much of His name. May we never allow it to become about us. Keep us in His name. And Jesus asked the Father that those Christ has been given, those who heard His voice and faithfully followed Him, those for which He, is, he was about to pray the, pay the highest price for their redemption and victory, and pay the price for their adoption, he pleads that his sheep would be one in unity, just as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are one in unity. What an amazing restoration he brings us into it in new birth. In the creation of man, the The unity of mankind was a blessed design of God in the beginning. For he said in Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image after our likeness. That it was insufficient to create a man, a solitary man, but the design of a holy God, of a unified God, was to create a community. A community that would be in unity. But it is sin that separated and brings judgment and bitterness and selfishness and hate and envy and coveting and malice and lust and manipulation of man for each other. It is only Christ, it is only in Christ that we have been truly empowered to know and to live out true unity again. Gospel-driven, God-honoring, patient, humble, loving unity. We cannot and will not know this kind of unity without Christ in us. Without Christ in you, you're still an observer. You might be among it. You might be experiencing the blessed overflow of it but to be in it you must know him because without him you still are ruled by your own lordship your own selfish desire for self john 13 35 by this all people will know that you are my disciples he says if you have love for one another We will dig into this more in the coming weeks as Jesus really makes our unity a huge focus of what we are to do until he comes again. We're going to see that in the latter parts of this prayer. So for the sake of time today, I want to keep moving. Look at verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me, I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. Come back to that individual in a moment. It is truly good news that we are secure in God and not our own efforts or best hopes based on anything man-made. Church, the fact that you are secure in Christ is truly one of the greatest realities of our new birth and faith in Him. Jesus says here that those the Father has given Him, that He has successfully kept them in God's name. If Jesus is supreme over everything in creation, if he is the one who literally is holding everything created together, then he is surely able and has the power to keep secure what he wants to be kept. There is no better guard than Jesus. We celebrate Jesus often as Lord, as savior, as our champion, as our king, as our example of a truly humbled servant life. But how often do you really cherish and celebrate that he is our guard, our keeper, our protector? Jesus says, not one has been lost but the son of destruction. Again, who I'll come back to in a moment. It is a sad reality to me that so many churches teach and so many people believe that God has successfully saved them, but that they can do something to get out of that salvation by their own works. That they can lose it or leave it. This is simply not what the scriptures teach us. To believe this is simply ignoring the teaching of Christ and his holy word, and is to think little of God and his ability to keep those he desires to save. They'll actually say that he desires... For all mankind to be saved. But he just doesn't get his way. (coughs) He desires to lose none. But it's a sad thing when people still walk away. I think it's a sad thing that that's the understanding of Scripture. Instead, let us rejoice in the understanding of Scripture to have a great confidence in the promises that those whom God saves, who he purposes, and who he provides salvation for, he will finish them in faith. That, that they will be guarded by God and in the end prove to be a true child of God and not an enemy of God. This is the beautiful and essential Christian doctrine of perseverance of the saints. We saw this clearly in Jesus' teaching back in chapter 6 and in chapter 10. Let's take a quick moment and refresh our minds for John's testimony of these things. I love how much of Jesus' prayer in chapter 17 is him recounting the, the things he said to the disciples and the people along the way in his time here on earth. John six thirty seven and 38, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. They will not be cast out. God will not change his mind and reject them later. The saved did nothing to gain their love and acceptance of God, so they can do nothing to lose it. That means if truly saved, and I say truly saved because as we've seen much in the Gospel of John, as we see much throughout the scriptures, that sadly there are many who think they're saved, who go about the practices and the routines of religion, but have not truly submitted their lives to Christ as Lord and Savior died to themselves and seen the evidence of true fruit and repentance. Ongoing sanctification. And so just because someone says they're saved doesn't mean that we apply this endurance to the end to them. There's fruit to be bore. There's ongoing repentance to continue. The, The signs of the truly saved will bear themselves in their lives. The truly saved by God will be forever his. Forever secure in his power. Look at verse 39 of chapter 6. And this, will be, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Church, we cannot be lost. Every one of his sheep are precious in his sight. Not only are we precious, but we will stand with him in victory. He will raise us up on the last day. Amen? Look at verse 40 of John 6. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Eternal life means no eternal death and destruction. Church, we need to not see our security as like divine walls of protection that surround a heavenly city. If that's the way you think about your eternal security, you have an insufficient view of it. It is far bigger and better than the best walls. It is active. The security of your salvation is always present and at work by the power of God by whom nothing can break in and take you out. Peter speaks of this so well in this passage I often quote. Privileged to preach it a few years back. First Peter 1, through 3-5 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Not a fleeting hope. Not a sketchy hope. Not a maybe hope. A living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So that's where maybe you're picturing some walls, some really sweet walls. Don't stop reading there. Read verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded. Through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Our inheritance is secure. Not because God has the most advanced security system that He's installed. <laughs> By whose power are we secure? Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. There's the security system. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Hidden with Christ in God means we're secure. Hidden, kept away from anyone who might desire to get us out, take us out. Who's going to break into God's grit to get you out? Who's going to steal you, convince you? No one. Not even Satan. The highest power is God, and He is the one who secures our eternity. He is able because He is God. Matthew 19, 26. Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Jesus speaks again of our security in His protection and power in John 10. John 10, 27 through 29, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hands. Amen? Come on. Just see it again and again and again. And let's rejoice in it. This is good news because although we are in exile in this time, foreigners and strangers in this land, he is actively guarding us. Not just in, in heaven, not just later, but now. In our exile, we are being guarded. Our security is in God's infallible commitment to fulfill the conditions of our eternal standing with him. By grace, he caused us to be born again. By creating our faith and by grace, he protects us on the way to heaven by preserving our faith. Jesus has and will guard his chosen and redeemed ones to the end. Jesus speaks of this in this context of saying we were once in the world, but now we're not. We're not of the world. We're members of his kingdom now. Exiles and strangers in this land. Guarded. Look again at verse 12, I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Jesus is speaking here of Judas, whom God foreordained would walk with Christ, but never be of Christ, proved to be an enemy of Christ. Church, hear me clearly this morning. Proximity to the gospel does not mean that you are saved by the gospel. Proximity to the gospel does not mean you are saved by the gospel. Back in John chapter 6, 70 and 71, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelfth? And yet, one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. For he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Jesus ordained from eternity past that eleven would be saved and endured, and one would reject him and betray him. Judas proved to be a false disciple. The most famous false disciple. He too was drawn to temporary things, the crowd, the money, things that were self serving. Jesus refers to him here as a son of destruction. And that he did this so the scriptures might be fulfilled. Let's look at that title, son of destruction, first. Romans 9 20 through 23. Paul says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What will, Will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. If there ever was a vessel of wrath prepared for destruction whom God has endured with much patience, it is the one they call Judas. Judas Iscariot. Do you remember John chapter 13, verse 18, but the scriptures will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. That's a quote from, or speaking of, Psalm 41, verse 9. Even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. It's prophesied many hundreds of years prior Jesus would be betrayed by someone close to him. God was not surprised by this. This was God's plan from the beginning. Judas was a vessel of wrath, a son of destruction. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Church, here's the point. Jesus knows who are his And he will have all who are his, and he will keep them to the end. Amen? And those who are not his will but sovereignly be used by God for his eternal purposes and glory, despite their wicked ways. Look at verse 13. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy... Fulfilled in themselves. Jesus again saying to the Father, I'm coming to you. But I've spoken these things in the world that their joy may be fulfilled. That they would have my joy, he says. Jesus clearly promises the disciples in chapter 16 That their sorrow would turn into joy. Do you remember that? And that no one would take their joy from them, he promised them. He also promised that Christ, in Christ, their joy would be full. Oh, how I pray that you are growing in your understanding of what it means to be in Christ in such a way that you're no longer measuring how good your life is by your temporary circumstances. But you are learning to evaluate the fullness of your cup based on who you are in Christ, despite your circumstances. This is a sign of a maturing believer. In chapter 15, Jesus said to his disciples These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. John 15, 11. Do you see the love of God in this church? He's fighting for their joy. It's not a joy found in their circumstances. It's a joy found only in Christ. The prize of all prizes is to be in Christ, to be in the eternal love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's saying one of the greatest blessings that is, is to be in Christ And that his his joy would be in us. To have the lasting and eternal and satisfying joy of the Lord. Joy of the Lord is the only way our joy will ever be full. You can't be more joyful than to have the love and life of Christ in you. To have his joy, his love. He is the true source of joy and love. Everything else is counterfeit. Everything else is second rate. Everything else is fleeting and temporary and circumstantial. And you know what it is to be very happy that many common day blessings would be upon you, that you'd have moments of great elation, so excited that they, in Christ, are not the peaks of your life only. But that there is a radical evenness of temper. That even in the great highs and the worst of lows, you are joyful. This is how Paul is able to say that he's sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. He's either cuckoo, <laughs> right? Or he has something so precious Jesus praying for it right here to the Father for us, for his people. So let us rightly steward really happy moments. A love relationship. You know, I've seen, Steve reminds me this often because we've, journeyed in the youth ministry for so many years and one of our great fears for our youth is not drugs or money or anything else. It is a love relationship because I have seen no greater drug that causes one to abandon their deepest love for Jesus than to pursue another love in his place. Not ever is that their intention but oh how vulnerable we are to get caught up in the idols of this life and to throw away good biblical wisdom and the centrality of God in our lives to pursue another love relationship love relationships are wonderful but they're not the best an amazing vacation wonderful maybe Maybe you are closer to that dream vacation. Or maybe you've recently experienced it. Maybe that high for you, that that happiness is when you're getting to walk down a sunset-filled beach. Or feel the crisp, cool air of a mountain breeze on your skin. Maybe for some of you, your, your, hot, your, your best highs in this life have been over a drug or an intimate encounter. Maybe the birth of a child. But all of these are moments. They come and they go. And yeah, you can talk about that dream vacation. Well, maybe be blessed in some of those things to get to enjoy them for a lifetime. But they're still fleeting. And in them, your joy will never be full. Only in Christ. Only God is eternal. Only the The joy he provides is sustaining. Only he satisfies like nothing else. King David said it so well in speaking of the Lord in Psalm 1611. Will you make known to me the path of life? In your presence is the fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forevermore. May you truly know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and as a result, know lasting and full joy. We need to never forget that our joy in Christ is in Christ and not our circumstances. And so when you're in that hard moment of feeling very down and out, you still rejoice in Christ. So I encourage you to speak that truth to yourself. Remind yourself of those things. Don't be guilty of getting that place where you're just just consumed and down and out. Where your post or your email or your words as a believer are not ever just doom and gloom. Why? Because you are in Christ. It's always tempered with that. And even your greatest wins, that they would never be by themselves the greatest thing or the highest moment left to itself, but there'd be a temperance of that with who you are in Christ, reminding your soul, maturing you along the way. That will seem a little crazy to a watching world, but they also think Paul's crazy for being sorrowful and always rejoicing. They don't get it. They don't get it. They don't have it. So we don't do it for the world. Look at verse 14. I have given them. Your word, and your word, and the world, let me start over. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I have, are not of the world. Church, the word of God is truth. It is the absolute standard by which the world falls short in every way outside of Christ. Christ is not of the world or its ways. He created the world and then came to it in flesh, but he's not of it. And those who are in Christ are also not of the world. Jesus said in John fifteen nineteen, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And as I said back then when I preached that text, you want to be hated by the world. That is a good identifier of where you stand. To be loved by the world is a scary thing. 1 Peter 1.1, Peter refers to us as the elect exiles. He's writing to Christians who are experiencing various forms of persecution, both men and women, who stand for Jesus Christ, has made them aliens or exiles, strangers in the midst of a pagan society. The persecution and suffering that Peter refers to was not, their prime, was not primarily social or religious. It was primarily social and religious, not legal. The hostile pagan society would slander them, ridicule them, discriminate against them, and even inflict physical abuse on them, whose lifestyles had radically changed because of their faith in Christ. Sounds kind of like today. Christian exiles are like immigrants, foreigners, temporary residents, refugees. We do not belong any longer to this world. Hebrews thirteen fourteen. For here we have no lasting city, we seek the city that is to come. We're not of the world because we are now with and in Christ, citizens of his eternal kingdom, and exile residents of this world's temporal kingdom. This is not our home church and because we're aliens here because we're exiles in a foreign land we will experience trouble, persecution and suffering dear friends, Peter says 1 Peter 4.12, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you instead we hold on to the truth that Paul says in Romans 8.18 the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us And so here in verse 16, Jesus says it again in John 17, 16, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. What a joy it is to be forever linked to Christ, the second Adam, so that our being linked to the first Adam in sin is no longer. Amen? Man, we got we to rejoice in that. But Paul says later in 1 Corinthians 15, all who are in the first Adam die But all who are in Christ shall live. So we're not of this world. We're still in the world. And Jesus is going to the Father, but he's not going to take his faithful disciples with him. Instead, he's going to send us into the world as sheep among wolves, it says in Scripture, but with the power of the Holy Spirit and the security of God and the sovereign power of Christ to save all of his sheep and bring them into his his eternal family. We continue. We march on. We testify. John 17, 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. To ask that God the Father would remove his faithful disciples would be to remove the witness of the gospel that God has intended from the start for us to give in this season of world history and God's economy. So he doesn't ask us to be taken out of the world, but that we would endure all temptation and falling susceptible to the evil one. Again, he knows the evil one does not have lording power over the saved. But there still is a fight in our flesh against temptation and sin, against the lure of the evil one. So he prays that we'd be kept from him. Will there be temptation? Yes. Will there be suffering? Yes. Will there be a real fight against our sin? Yes. But we have overcome the evil one in Christ and we can resist his temptations and the temptations of our sin in Christ. Church, see that Jesus gets it. He lived among the temptations and the lies and the hatred of the world. He knows. He gets it. When you're in the middle of it, run to Him. Don't ask Him to take you out of the world, but to preserve you through it for His purposes and His glory. So Jesus' first direct request for His faithful disciples is not to take them out of the world, but to preserve them and keep them from the evil one as they serve the King and testify the gospel and make disciples and in doing so, launch the church that we are now a part of today. Praise God. The second request in Jesus' prayer for those faithful disciples is connected to this. Look at verse 17 through 19 as we wrap up. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Sanctification Church is the process of being made more holy. It's the process of maturing in Christ to be more like Christ. It means that we are less driven by ourself and our sin and more driven by the Holy Spirit and God's given instructions for holiness in our lives. Praise God for the gospel of Jesus Christ, which frees people to grow in sanctification. Hebrews 10:14, "By a single offering, he has perfected all those who are being sanctified." Sanctification is the progressive act of making something or someone clean or holy." Second Corinthians 3:18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Philippians 2, 12-13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The work of sanctification is done by the truth of God's word. It must instruct us, teach us, correct us, replace the lies that we've believed and the deceit of our flesh to twist and manipulate and make it our way. To replace all that with the truth of God. And how will you know what is truth and what is lies? How do you know what God wants and what he doesn't want? How do you know who God is and what will honor him? The word is truth. Jesus is truth and his word is truth. Jesus said, I am the truth in John 14, 6. Came to witness the truth in John 18, 37. We cannot navigate the lies of the devil, the selfishness of the flesh of this world without the truth of God's word. This is why I'm so passionate to preach it so faithfully. Your elders and I so passionate to hold us accountable and to steer our church according to the word and not our traditions or our preferences or our desires. To teach it well and rightly and to lead us according to it. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be completely equipped for every good work. Church, the Father sent the Son of the world to bring us the truth And now he's sending us in Christ into the world to bring his truth. Church, this is not just another Sunday. For some in the room, it could be your last Sunday. For some of you this week, the Lord has been preparing you for your most important encounter to testify of the gospel. Are you in his word? Are you praying as you wake up every day? Because that could be the day that he's going to put before you someone who needs to hear it clearly. I pray we don't flippantly run out of this place and go about this week not ready, not bold, not passionate, not joyful in Him. Let us not take lightly who we are in Christ. That in Christ our joy is full. That He's sanctifying us every day in His word of truth. That He's purposing us to be disciples, that we would then make disciples of all nations. Testify his gospel to a dark and lost world. Church, let us rejoice in our God this morning. Let us stand in awe of who he is and what he has done and what he will do in and through us this week. Amen. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this time. This time in your word, this very special time for us, your your beloved, your church, your redeemed. We thank you for your endurance of us in our exile. Thank you for the things you've brought to our minds by the work of the Holy Spirit this morning, nuances and clarities and convictions that each of us, that you have for each of us. That we not put them away, make excuses, get busy with lunch or evening activities, but that we do business with them. That we would joyfully climb back into your word and into prayer and and spend time with you. That we would walk in unity as a church and to, to walk and talk and confess and to repent and to grow together in these things. Ready us, Lord. Not to feel like we have all the answers and thereby we're ready to testify this week, but to be confident in who we are in you and that the Holy Spirit will help bring those clarities to mind ready us for the challenges that are before us, that we would truly walk by faith and not by sight, and we would experience the joy of the Lord even in the midst of our greatest struggles and loss. That if victory is what you have for us, if, if elation is a part of this week, that we too would temper that temporary happiness with our great cling to the joy, eternal joy we have in Christ. you would be honored and glorified by our lives and our testimony hear us now as we praise your holy name in jesus name amen